Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. Whether you're joining us online or in person, we're really thrilled that you're here. And I would like to personally blame Tyler for the weather this morning. Uh, Tyler is originally from California, and he told me last week that he'd made a bet with his wife that we were done snow. So you can deal with Tyler after the service. Friends, if you want to open your Bible, if you've got it on your phone or the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, it's Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34. It's on page 6 at the back of the Pew Bible if you want it, or call it up on your phone, Matthew 6, 25. Now, we just heard Jesus say very clearly that worry has no place in the life of the Christian. Can I tell you what I've done all week? I've worried about this sermon. I've worried about getting it done, and I've worried about it being any good. And then I've worried about the fact that I've been worrying. In the mid-1950s, there were two famous cardiologists, Friedman and Roseman, and they noticed that type A people uh, worried more than type B. See if this description by them uh, reminds you of anyone you know. We are very competitive. We compete over everything and find to our embarrassment that when we play board games with small children, we're desperately trying to win. We swap lanes in traffic jams, even though we know there is an eternal law that the lane we have just joined will now move more slowly than the lane we've just left. On the highway, we hate stopping for gas because when we pull over, we look out over the road and worry about all the cars we had overtaken who were now going past us. I see some people looking at the person sitting next to them. Regardless of our personality type, worry is a force of great power. One of the reasons the Western Alliance has been slow to impose sanctions on Russia is the worry that us voters will not be able to stomach the higher prices at the pump. Whether you are a spiritual seeker or already a disciple of Jesus, worry can tighten its fist in your stomach. And as we continue this Lent in our preaching series, looking at the 100 essential passages from the Bible, last week, uh, Tyler talked about how we look for satisfaction by trying to control things and stay safe. Now, we might like being in control, and some of us even like the thrill of risk. But I haven't yet met anybody who likes worry. But... But worry can serve as a really helpful diagnostic tool because worry tells us a lot about ourselves and can give us life-changing insights into the character of God. And this morning we're going to see that worry teaches us about ourselves, teaches us about God, and Jesus gives us a strategy to keep our minor and our major worries in check. So worry as an effective diagnostic. When Jesus told his earliest followers not to worry, he was talking to people who had plenty of reasons to do just that. These were people who found themselves in a highly precarious 
financial situation. They'd left their jobs behind, their families behind to follow this wandering rabbi around the Judean countryside. The Romans were beginning to take notice of the movement, and Jesus kept slipping in disconcerting references to death, uh, to suffering, to persecution. And while there can, of course, be legitimate things to fear, Jesus obviously saw an inordinate worry and anxiety creeping into his followers, and he wanted to address it. St. Augustine, an African bishop in the 4th century, said that our worries are like breadcrumbs sprinkled behind us. Follow the breadcrumbs and you will find the things which enslave you because we fear losing them. Follow the breadcrumbs, says Augustine, because fear and anxiety are always the implosion of a false god. Let's let that sink in for a moment. Fear and worry are always the implosion of a false god. Augustine, when something which is infinite, uh, when something which is finite becomes our infinite, we fall from God's happiness. In other words, if good things, like friends, family, career, if they become our one thing, the one thing we think we have to have in order to be happy and professionally fulfilled, when good desires become inordinate desires, that's when we become trapped by worry and fear that we will lose them and all the peace and happiness we've convinced ourselves that they will give us. So these breadcrumbs of worry are a fantastic diagnostic about ourselves and about God because they lead us to what we love. So what, what do we learn about God? Verse 26. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not worry about your life. Now notice the wording. This is not sensible advice. In fact, it's actually the same sentence structure used in the Ten Commandments telling us not to murder or to commit adultery. Look, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap. Observe, says Jesus. Make an empirical observation from the world around you. It's obvious that the birds are kept alive and that food is provided for them in nature. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And this is where it's interesting. God as the creator of the universe, cares for God's creation and provides for the material needs of the birds. God is the bird's creator, but not their heavenly father. Are you not much more valuable than them? An earthly father may take the dog out for a walk. An earthly father might even put a bird feeder out. But an earthly father is not going to provide sustenance for an animal and then neglect his own children. And if that's true of an earthly father, says Jesus, how much more true is it of our heavenly father? And while we may struggle with the idea of God as our heavenly father because of a painful relationship with our earthly father, but the fact that we struggle in the first place 
is because we're experiencing how far our Father falls short of the love that we deserve and want and need from our Heavenly Father. Our worry exposes what we yearn for in the character of God. New York writer Tim Keller says this, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. We worry because we forget this about the character of God, that God has a perspective on our lives that we will never have and can be trusted to provide for us in ways that are best for us, which, let's be honest, that's intellectually challenging to be content with. What about suffering? It's also practically difficult to live with because the bills need to be paid. But I'm still going to put it out there because Jesus does. Worry exposes what we yearn for in the character of God. Now, worry, secondly, also diagnoses what is the operative perspective in our hearts. What's the perspective functioning in our hearts? Verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, notice this, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus knows that the vast majority of our worries center around our desire to extend our lives, or at least enhance their quality, maximize its pleasure. And Jesus is not saying that our physical health doesn't matter, or having clothes to wear or food to eat is irrelevant. Of course not. And issues of poverty and hunger and injustice have to be at the forefront of the mind of a follower of Jesus. But worrying about them, worrying, that's what's useless, says Jesus. He once again in verse 30 points us to the natural world and asks us to observe grass. Now, here in the city of Toronto, a grass is lovingly watered and weeded and cared for, often at great expense. And it even becomes a topic of neighborhood conversation. Ian, your grass, it's looking great this year. But when Jesus was speaking, grass was immediately cut, dried, and put in ovens, where it produced great heat to bake bread. Its life was utterly transient and fleeting. And yet while it was alive, it was still clothed in splendor. God even cares for the things that literally are here today and gone tomorrow. Action, not worry, is what God calls us to in the face of hunger and poverty in this city and around the world. And if you think you only have one life to live, you're much more likely to worry about amassing wealth and beautiful experiences in life rather than working to alleviate suffering in the lives of others. But a follower of Jesus is someone who's learning. We're all learning here. A follower of Jesus is someone who's learning that this life is but a shadow of the future to come, of eternity. And an eternal perspective shows how fruitless how all earthly worry about material things is. 
St. Paul, who was an early Christian writer, says this in 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 4, verse 17. For this slight momentary affliction, right, like our lives, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Worry is useless, says Jesus. It will not add to your earthly life, and it won't feed the hungry. And don't even worry. We were all made for eternity anyway. So worry, it's a great diagnostic. It tells us, one, something about ourselves. We need to cultivate an eternal perspective. And two, it reminds us of the character of God, our loving Heavenly Father. So lastly, what strategy does Jesus hold out for us in the midst of our minor and our major worries? It's so simple, it's almost disappointing. Jesus says, apply your faith. Apply it. This passage in the Gospel of Matthew is, is part of that famous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching those Jews who've decided to follow him. Hence, he makes clear the contrast between the Gentiles in verse 32, non-Jews who were not following him. So Jesus is not saying, if you worry, it's because you don't have faith. He's not saying that. Because he's already speaking to disciples, who by definition have already thrown their lot in with him. Jesus is not concerned here with the absence of faith, Rather, what he wants us to do is to apply the faith we have, no matter how tiny a shred it is. He wants us to apply the faith that we have to all the areas of our lives. And we may decide to follow Jesus and place our trust in who he is, but then what you and I do every day, and I include myself, is that we then fail to connect that faith to our visa payments or our romantic choices. In Lent, we are preparing ourselves to celebrate the fact that God so loved the world, he gave up his only son to death so that we might not be enslaved to the present and eternal consequences of sin. Take your faith in that, says Jesus, and spread it out, apply it. And when we worry about material things, in effect, what we're saying is that the God who cares so much about our eternal destiny is also the same God who can't deal with the price of rent, or your broken heart, or your youngest child. I might trust God in my good days with my eternal destiny, but not with next week. So don't worry, says Jesus. But do this. Don't worry, but I want you to strive. I want you to strive to apply your faith across your life. And this is why belonging to one of our connect groups is such a good idea. Friends with whom you can work out how to apply your faith in Jesus to your daily life. Verse 33. But strive strive for God's kingdom 
and all these things will be given to you as well. God's kingdom, where God's dreams and hopes for the world are brought into reality by the prayers and actions of God's people, us, right here, right now in this city. Look, says Jesus, if you really want something to worry about, worry about this instead. Worry about building my kingdom, not yours. Everything else will fall into place after that. Baron Fitzgerald was an Irish nobleman at the end of the 19th century. He only had one son who died soon after he left home. And this was a tragedy that his father never fully recovered from. And to assuage his grief, he began to invest his substantial wealth in paintings by the great masters. And when he died, his will was found to call for all his paintings to be sold at an auction. And because of their quality, this was an auction attended by collectors and museums from all over Europe. This is a true story. And when the day of the auction came, the lawyer read from Fitzgerald's will. It was instructed that the first painting to be sold was a painting of my beloved son. The portrait was by an unknown artist of little artistic merit, and the only bidder was an old servant who had known and loved the boy. And for a small sum of money, he purchased the painting purely for its sentimental value. There was thin, polite applause. And as the gavel came down on the purchase, the lawyer read a second time from the will. Whoever buys the painting of my son gets it all. The auction is over. Whoever gets the son gets it all. We've been offered the son. And the son commands us not to worry. I can't tell you not to worry. Who cares what I think? Only Jesus, only Jesus has the legitimacy, the authority, the authenticity to command us like that. He gave up every earthly concern. He gave up every worry about his body and its needs. He gave it all up to be crucified for us. And only because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus are we set free from ultimate concerns. Our eternal destiny is assured, which is the only thing that can give us any confidence in our daily lives to say to that cold, dark hand of worry, no, I'm not interested. The God whom I'm trusting for today, I'm also going to trust for tomorrow. I will not think your thoughts. With that freedom can come great purpose to strive towards building that kingdom, letting God rule in our lives and the lives of our families and in this neighborhood right around us. Thanks be to God. Amen.